0: Welcome back to the Furs and Frontiers podcast. I'm your host, Tracy Walmer. If you were to ask me to name one historic character that I would like to have coffee with, this guy would be it. Not only did he set the standard for what a mountain man should be, he did it with a deep reverence for nature in native ways. He had a storyteller's flair for dramatics with a ridiculously quick wit and a sense of humor. And he was just as well-known for his embellished campfire stories as he was for his actual achievements. This guy was the class clown of the Rendezvous era and someone I admire so much. So today we're going to meet Jim Bridger, or Old Gabe, as his friends called him. Jim Felix Bridger was born on March 17, 1804, in Richmond, Virginia, to innkeeper James Bridger, who we will call the Elder to keep things straight, and his wife, Chloe Tyler. They had two boys and then two girls, with Jim being the second-born son. Besides running the inn with his wife, the elder James served as the county surveyor. This took him away from home-on-long expeditions into the wilderness, and it would make sense that one of his children would have a surveyor's appreciation for the land and its uncharted frontiers. When James the Elder heard they were paying great money for surveyors on the New Frontier, he packed up his family and moved to a sleepy little town on the outskirts of St. Louis. The young Jim Bridger would have been eight years old at the time, but this move to the edge of the civilized United States must have had a huge impact on the boy. He and his siblings had no formal education, and they could not read or write, But one could imagine these children grew up exploring the forests around the family homestead and gained an intimate knowledge of the way things work in the wilderness. I imagine the Bridger boys roaming through the woods, building a fort out of the fallen branches and threatening their younger sisters to keep out of it. And I envision that under the threat of being tattled onto their parents, the boys finally caved and let the girls in only to have them take over the place, just like a normal childhood. I would like to think that the Bridger children had that innocent, carefree life that we all wish for for our kids, full of the awesome wonders of exploring the world. Sadly, though, this wouldn't last. Between the years 1816 and 1817, James the Elder, his wife Chloe, along with their oldest son, had each died independent of each other and without any warning. 12 year old Jim and the two younger girls were orphaned and their childhoods ended abruptly. The children were sent to their aunt's house to live. Now, here's an unrelated tidbit of history for you. Years later, this aunt would marry a man named John Tyler, the future president of the United States, thereby making Jim Bridger the nephew of the president by marriage. Now, up until now, Jim had by no means been an idle kid. By the age of 10, Jim had saved up enough money from odd jobs to buy a flatbed ferry, which he used to haul goods around St. Louis for people. By the age of 13, Jim took an apprenticeship with the local blacksmith, a man named Phil Cromer. For the next five years, he spent his waking moments building up the muscles, learning the smithing trade, and trying to hold his family together. Shortly after February 13, 1822, his life would change forever. He heard about an ad in the local newspaper asking for a hundred enterprising young men to work as hunters up the Missouri River. The pay was $200, nearly five times what he was making as an apprentice, and it meant that he could reconnect with the wilderness that he loved so much. So Jim signed on, and I would imagine he got lined up with all the other wilderness wannabes in front of his new boss, Brigadier General William Henry Ashley. Ashley must have been standing there looking over these bragtag, inexperienced young men and wondering just what he'd gotten himself into. But he got down to the business of molding these young bucks into real mountain men. And it didn't take long for Ashley to see something special in this awkward young Bridger kid. The skinny 17-year-old was just over six foot tall. He stood straight as an arrow with a broad and powerful frame. He had thoughtful, gentle gray eyes peering out from an unruly mop of wavy brown hair. He was well-mannered and had a quick smile that reached all the way up to his eyes. And while he was a bit naive and awkward, that could have just been the anxiety that Ashley often saw in his new recruits. But as Ashley was soon to realize, there was something else about this young man. He had an incredibly accurate compass built into his brain with an uncanny ability to memorize the landscape around him. It was said that with a buffalo skin and a piece of charcoal, He could map out any portion of the vast wilderness with incredible accuracy, having only had to traverse it one time. I actually have a copy of one of those maps on the website for you. The actor Will Poulter portrayed the young Jim Bridger in the 2015 movie, The Revenant, and this is exactly what I envisioned him to look like, innocent and awkward, scared and unsure of himself. But as far as these 100 new recruits were concerned, Ashley knew that this Bridger kid was something special, and it wouldn't take long before the kid proved him right. On July 2, 1823, Ashley's company, known as Ashley's Hundred, came under attack by the Arikara natives, also sometimes referred to by the mountain men as Rees, as they are in the movie. Normally, the Arikara would have been friendly with the trappers and traders, but they had just been given the shaft by a different fur company, and they were gunning for revenge. So in July of 1823, Jim is sent with some of these trappers towards present-day Lemon, South Dakota, when they again come under attack by the local natives, probably the Ericara. This is the scene portrayed in the Revenant movie where they're scrambling to get to the boats under fire from the natives. One of the company leaders, a man by the name of Hugh Glass, was slightly injured in the attack, and 15 other men were killed. Hugh Glass is portrayed by Leonardo DiCaprio, for those of you who haven't seen the movie yet. Then, just one month later, something terrible happens. Hugh Glass was viciously attacked by this massive mama bear protecting her cubs. Now, Glass was a grizzled old pirate turned mountain man, and one seriously tough dude. But he succeeded in killing the bear, just not before it seriously messed him up. By the time the bear lay dead, half on top of Glass. Glass had a broken leg, his scalp was torn away from his skull, blood gushed and air gurgled from his perforated throat, most of his back was shredded to ribbons, and one of his glutes was almost completely gone. He was losing blood so quickly. He kept fading in and out of consciousness, and the prognosis at that point was dire. Volunteers were asked to stay with the injured man and bury him after he died, and they were offered $400 bonus. Well, two volunteers stepped up, an older man by the name of John Fitzgerald and the young Jim Bridger. I mean, how long could it possibly take this horribly wounded man to die anyways? Well, five days after the party had moved on, Fitzgerald and Bridger came to realize it was going to take a lot longer than they first thought. So, figuring, or maybe hoping, that the end was near, they began digging Glass's grave. Knowing hostile air carrier in the area, and predators are sniffing about because they smell the blood of this injured man, these two men start debating whether or not they should just leave now. He was as sure as dead anyways, right? Bridger protested. He didn't want to leave until this man actually died, because it didn't seem right. They were specifically told to stay until he died, and then bury him. But Fitzgerald convinces him that this is the way it has to be, especially with all the hostile natives close by. Well, Bridger hadn't seen any Ericara, but Fitzgerald reportedly lied and said he had seen lots of them just the day before. Well, this scared the bejesus out of Jim Bridger, who would have had several fresh memories of how bad Indian attacks were. So a very frightened Bridger finally agreed to leave. But just in case it did take Glass a long time to die, Jim insisted they lay him near the water under a berry bush. You know, just in case he got hungry. The two men take Glass's Hawkin rifle, his knife, and his flint pouch, because, well, he's not going to need them anyways, and they disappear into the wilderness, leaving Hugh Glass to die a slow, horrible death. Only he didn't die. He regained his strength as he lay there over the next week drinking from the stream, and eating all the berries he could reach. He even killed a rattlesnake with a rock and ate it raw. You talk about one tough individual. At first, Glass dragged himself and then crawled and then limped more than 200 miles to find Jim Bridger, vowing the whole time to kill those mangy dogs that took his stuff and left him there to die. Now, understand something here. Leaving a man to die in the wilderness wasn't really that big of a deal. It was a completely forgivable offense. Callous as it may seem to our modern sensibilities, the frontier was a survival of the fittest situation. What really galled Hugh Glass, and honestly most of the other mountain men of the time, was that they stole his only means of protecting himself, his weapons. This included his beloved Hawken rifle, which he fully intended to get back, And apparently that anger was what propelled him to make one of the most miraculous treks in our nation's history. Since I do want to do a special Hugh Glass episode, I'll save the rest of the details for a later date. If you've not seen the movie The Revenant, I strongly encourage you to do so. It's fairly historically accurate if you ignore the fact that Hugh Glass didn't really have a pawnee wife or a half-pawnee son and the bear attack actually happened during the summer, when the cubs are still small. But it does depict the way they lived, and it shows how the inexperienced new recruits would learn from their elders, as well as the kind of conditions that these men worked in. Just know that Bridger and Fitzgerald had been split up by the time that Glass got back to town. So when Glass tracked down Jim Bridger, the teenager was sure he was looking at a ghost. Can you imagine what that must have been like? Bridger hadn't wanted to abandon Glass, and being the compassionate individual he was, he was probably still dealing with the guilt of it even these weeks later. Then to have that dead man come staggering into camp, looking like he had just come back as some kind of wraith, that would have scared the bejesus out of any saint man, let alone a teenage boy. The pale husk of the formerly robust Glass standing before Bridger could have killed him for sure, and Jim was truly expecting it. Instead, Glass gave him a serious lecture about doing the right thing, when being pressured by bullies, and being a better man, and he demanded that the boy learn the Mountain Man Code of Ethics. You don't ever touch a man's weapon. Glass had apparently been coherent during the two men's debate about deserting him, and he knew what had been said by both men. He knew Jim had spoken out against betrayal, and that he was just a young, naive kid going along with the older Fitzgerald. So before he left to go kill Fitzgerald and get his hawk and rifle back, he invoked God's wrath over a very quaking Jim Bridger, and he made him swear to be a better person. One can only imagine that Hugh Glass putting the fear of God into Jim Bridger helped to shape him into the leader that he was becoming, because for the rest of his days, Jim Bridger was a changed man. In fact, this is why Jim gets the nickname Old Gabe over the coming years, He was so impacted by Hugh Glass's lecture that he began looking out for everyone in camp. Jedediah Smith equated Jim's new sense of duty to that of the biblical angel Gabriel watching over the masses, and he started calling him Gabe. And in Mountain Man lingo, the term old doesn't refer to a person's age. It's a title of respect. Ashley also saw the change in Jim Bridger, and he began including him in the leadership responsibilities and involving him in more aspects of the company. So when Ashley's group moved up into the Green River Valley in 1823, Jim Bridger was among that group of trappers that rediscovered the South Pass, which would someday become part of the Oregon Trail. This group also took a trip to Ashley's Fort near the confluence of the Yellowstone and the Bighorn Rivers to pick up trade goods giving the young man a taste of the wonders of nature. And by 1824, Bridger was leading his own brigade of trappers. Now, in 1825, his contract ran out with Ashley's Hundred. He decided to stay on with the company, but as a free trapper, meaning he was not contracted to work for Ashley. For anyone who hasn't listened to the previous episodes explaining the difference between the trappers, A free trapper is a sort of self-employed man, and he has no loyalty to one company. He's free to come and go as he pleases and to sell to whomever gives him the best price. But these people were Bridger's friends, family even, so he decided to stay with the group. Bridger is still traveling with Ashley's Hundred when Ashley and company are returning to St. Louis after the 1825 rendezvous. Ashley has nearly 300 pack mules with a ridiculous load of wealth strapped to their backs. Discussion came up about rafting it down the Bighorn River to save a few days time. Ashley was against it. The Bighorn Canyon was dangerous with extreme rapids and Ashley wasn't willing to risk the $50,000 worth of furs just to save a few days. This would be about a million and a half dollars today so our daring Jim Bridger at this point decide to prove Ashley wrong. He built a homemade raft out of driftwood, and he pulls it out into the middle of the Bighorn River, and he's immediately whisked away. Later downriver, he reunites with his friends, who are just amazed that he's even still alive, and he tells them the craziest story about the things he'd seen. He describes beautiful sceneries and overhanging precipices so majestic that they blocked out the sunlight. He tells of raging, foaming rapids and rocks that nearly split his raft asunder. Incidentally, 40 years later, he's still telling the same story around campfires to the groups that he's serving as a guide for. And one of those people was Captain William F. Reynolds, who had been sent to explore the area around Yellowstone. Reynolds recorded that story in his official report and Bridger went down in history as the first man to traverse the raging Bighorn River Canyon, which is like one of the most miraculous trips in frontier history. But Jim Bridger would go on to have a whole lot of firsts. Uh, According to a biography written by Army officer Grenville Dodge, who knew Bridger very well on the frontier, he says Bridger was the first man positively known to see Salt Lake. In fact, no one believed him when he told of his discovery of Salt Lake. They said he had simply found the Pacific Ocean. It turned out he was right. In 1830, when Jedediah Smith, David Jackson, and William Sublette were ready to hang up their traps, Jim Bridger and several other employees of that company bought them out. So Jim Bridger renames the Endeavor the Rocky Mountain Fur Company, and that's the name that would last through history. The trappers of this newly formed company split up and each take different sections of the country. Bridger and his fellow trappers Thomas Fitzpatrick and Milton Sublette took 200 men, went back into the Bighorn Basin in present-day Montana, crossed the Yellowstone, traveled north to the Great Falls of the Missouri River. Here they ascended the Missouri into what is known today as Three Forks. They traveled to Jefferson to the Divide and then traveled south several hundred miles to get to Salt Lake. This trip is nearly a thousand miles long over some of the most rugged terrain. Some of those elevations are 6,000 feet high. In fact, one of Bridger's favorite stories was how a great snowfall fell in the year 1830. And he said that the whole of the Salt Lake Valley was covered up to a depth of 70 feet. He said all the buffalo perished that year. And when spring came, he would tell his enraptured listeners, all I had to do was tumble them into the lake and I had enough pickled buffalo for myself and the whole Ute nation for years. Okay, so I did warn you that he enjoyed embellishing his stories. It's very likely that this is the first time Jim Bridger witnessed The alien landscapes of geysers and roiling lakes of what we would today call Yellowstone National Park. Sources are conflicted on what year he actually discovered the natural wonders of Yellowstone for the first time. What they are in agreement on is that he didn't shut up about it for the rest of his days. And until much later, no one actually believed him. He told anyone and everyone he met about. How the ground was spewing out great plumes of sulfur as if the very bowels of hell itself were coming to earth in fact he often referred to the yellowstone geysers as coulter's hell named after his longtime friend john coulter even seasoned veterans sat in awe when he would tell the new recruits the stories of the things he'd seen in coulter's hell surprisingly this area would not be fully explored until the 1860s and when they got there they realized he had not been lying. The face of the fur trade was changing by this time, though. Competition had been getting tougher, and the American Fur Company was ramping up the pressure on the Rocky Mountain trappers, even going so far as shooting at them to try to scare them off the prime beaver land. So to say the tensions were tight is an understatement. Now, in 1832, Jim Bridger and Thomas Fitzpatrick were out scouting the Rocky Mountain Fur Company and they realized they were being tailed by a few of the scouts from the American Fur Company. Knowing the country better than their stalkers did, Bridger and Fitzpatrick lure these men into the heart of Blackfoot country and then beat feet out of the area while these men were either killed or barely escaped with their lives. Bridger was no stranger to the native ways. He earned the respect of nearly all the local tribes, and he was very sensitive to their beliefs. But the Blackfoot tribes had a really bad taste for the white folk. It didn't matter if they were a respectful mountain man or those pasty-skinned immigrants with their wagon trains flooding over the Alleghenies. An intruder was an intruder in a Blackfoot mind. And Jim Bridger had more than one run-in with the Blackfeet. On one occasion, he was sitting on his horse with his rifle laying across the pommel under a signal of truce he was approached by a blackfoot chief not trusting the situation he cocked the rifle and pulled it up to point it at the chief the chief pushed the barrel down to face the ground causing bridger to hit the trigger the gun discharged and a whole lot of chaos ensued jim was dragged from his saddle and he took two arrows to the back before making his crazy escape one arrow Fitzpatrick reportedly dug out with his pocket knife, but the second was too deeply engaged. So Bridger reaches back, breaks the shaft off at the head, and left the point in his shoulder for the next three years. Bridger had that wanderlust that's so often attributed to these mountain men. So when the opportunity came up to ride to the Spanish Southwest for the winter of 1833 and thirty-four, he took it. With fellow trappers Sir William Drummond Stewart and Thomas Fitzpatrick, these men traveled south along the Rio Grande to the Gulf. They traveled west through the lands that would become Arizona and New Mexico, and this must have been an amazing change of scenery for a man who had spent nearly his entire life in the mountains. By 1834, though, he could see the writing on the wall. The fur trade was dying out, beavers were scarce, and the natives were getting extremely volatile. He and his partners dissolved the Rocky Mountain Fur Company, and Jim Brinter became a free man. He reportedly spent the next winter roaming the Rocky Mountains, offering himself up as a guide to hunting parties. He did some trapping, and by the summer of 1835, he had acquired enough pelts to do some serious training at the Summer Rendezvous. It was at the Summer Rendezvous in 1835 that he met the missionary Dr. Marcus Whitman, who very graciously performed many a medical procedure at this event. You figure, these guys hadn't been to a family doctor in years, and likely there was a good number of issues that had to be dealt with. And if you remember Jim's harrowing experience with that Blackfoot chief a few years back, he still had that arrowhead embedded in his shoulder. So much to the enjoyment of the other mountain men, the good doctor agreed to remove the projectile. The doctor's missionary companion was a guy named Samuel Parker, and he kept a journal of all the various surgical procedures that Dr. Whitman performed at this 1835 rendezvous, but he was most impressed with the attempt to remove that arrowhead. He writes, he extracted an iron arrow three inches long from the back of Captain Bridger, which he had received in a skirmish three years before with the Blackfeet Indians. It was a difficult operation, in consequence of the arrow being hooked at the point by striking a large bone, and a cartilaginous substance had grown around it. The doctor pursued the operation with great self-possession and perseverance, and Captain Bridger manifested equal firmness. The Indians looked on while the operation was proceeding, with countenances indicating wonder, and when they saw the arrow, expressed their astonishment in a manner peculiar to themselves. Incidentally, Samuel Parker made another journal entry about Bridger that I would like to share with you. I am unsure of the date of this, but it could well have happened at the same 1835 rendezvous. It seems Bridger's one and only suit of buckskins had become infested with body lice that he had to appeal to the doctor for a way to get rid of them. And this is a very common complaint back in these days, when people only owned one or two sets of clothing and bathing wasn't really a priority. The doctor instructed him to take off the clothes, turn them inside out, and lay them on the ground. Then he poured a ridge of gunpowder over the seams. Unfortunately, the doctor used too much gunpowder, and when he struck the match, he effectively reduced Jim Bridger's only set of clothing to a pile of charred leather scraps. According to Parker, Bridger looked at Dr. Whitman for a long moment in great disgust. Then, in Parker's words, with a big oath said, I'm going to kill you for that. Dr. Whitman was very much afraid that the big man was going to make good on that threat, and it's said that Bridger refused to talk to him for three days because he had to walk around naked except for a buffalo robe. Eventually, the other man took up a collection and made Bridger decent again. 1835 was a really big year for Jim. Besides having this arrowhead evicted and possibly spending the event naked, he also got married for the first time. Now, Jim married the daughter of a flathead Indian chief in Sala. Sometimes he's known as Little Chief or Scarface. Jim called her Emma, though most sources give her name as Cora. And he just adored this woman. This is where Jim Bridger gets his second nickname, Blanket Chief. Emma had made him a very unusual multicolored blanket, which he wore with great pride. At first, Blanket Chief didn't mean much, other than a means of pointing him out in a crowd. But as Bridger became known for these qualities that the natives admired so much, it became a title of respect. Well, Jim and Emma welcomed their first child in November of that year. Now, for anyone having trouble with that math, the rendezvous was in July, and the baby, Mary Ann Bridger, was born November 18th the same year, 1835. So it's very likely that the native woman, Emma, was already traveling with the fur company prior to this rendezvous and that they had been dating of sorts. So remember that trapper, Sir William Drummond Stewart, that spent the winter months of 1833-34 riding the Southwest with Jim Bridger? They immediately became fast friends. When they met up again at the summer rendezvous in 1836, Stewart promised to bring a special gift from his native Scotland for Bridger the next time he saw him. And in 1837, he made good on that promise by giving Bridger a full night suit of armor complete with a plumed bucket-style helmet. Bridger was reportedly quite intoxicated and donned this suit and clanked his way around through camp for several days. It's said that when camp broke up to head back to the mountains, Bridger was still wearing that armor. Now, in 1841, Jim and his wife Emma had their second child, a son named Felix, With a growing family and the prospects of spending the rest of his days traveling trap lines, kind of getting him down, Jim decided to settle down and reap the lucrative profits from this influx of immigrants that were coming to the area. In 1843, the two-year-old Bridger baby Felix must have been toddling around barefoot while his father and fellow trader, Louis Vasquez, built a new trading post on the west bank of the Black Forks of this Green River. This would be slightly northwest of present-day McKinnon, Wyoming, and you can still visit this iconic landmark today. It would become named Fort Bridger, and it would serve pioneers on the Oregon Trail for centuries to come. One awesome story attributed to Jim Bridger is how he once visited New York City, and he found it an absolutely horrible place. The buildings towered over the landscape, The crowds were unbearable, and he quickly got lost in the narrow streets and had to be rescued by a cop. But he did like one building he found there, the theater. He expressed such delight at this man called Shakespeare and his Midsummer Night's Dream performance that he encouraged traveling thespians to perform little snippets of Shakespeare's works whenever they were visiting Fort Bridger. In fact, he enjoyed Shakespeare so much, he would later trade two of his best oxen for a copy of Shakespeare's work. He then hired a soldier to act as a reader for $50 a month, and Bridger would sit and listen to Shakespeare be read aloud every evening. One source says that one evening, the reader had come to the part where Richard III murdered the two princes in the tower, and Bridger sprang from his seat and yelled in these great thundering tones, Hold on there, just wait till I get my rifle and I'll shoot the scoundrel. And another source says that the reader had just told him how Richard III put out the eyes of the young princess. Bridger very quietly looked at the reader and asked, He really done this? Yes, replied the reader. Bridger jumps up, snatches the book out of the man's hands, and threw it into the blazing fireplace, exclaiming, Well, by thunder, that's what I think of him. I'm not sure which story is actually true, but either way, it's said that Bridger was now over his fascination with Shakespeare. So Jim and his family were still acting as hosts at Fort Bridger in 1845 when his daughter Mary Josephine was born. Sadly, his beloved Emma would die just a few days later. Jim remarried a youth woman whom he called Virginia, though her name was probably Chipta, depending on which records you read in 1846, and he began working as a wilderness guide at Fort Bridger and in the surrounding areas. He could simply look at an incoming group of pioneers and accurately assess their chances of survival. He would give them advice and tips on traversing the trails to any multitude of the destinations in the Rocky Mountain. Well, one such group came along in 1846, the Donner Party, They came to Fort Bridger for supplies and for this kind of advice, and they were assured by Bridger that the explorer Lansford Hastings, his proposed shortcut ahead, was a fine level road with plenty of water and grass, with the exception of a 40-mile waterless stretch. Well, that 40-mile waterless stretch was in fact 80 miles, and that fine level road was so difficult That it slowed the Donner Party's wagons so drastically, they ended up becoming entrapped in the Sierra Nevadas over the winter. These people were reduced to cannibalizing their fallen friends and family to survive. There's a great debate as to whether or not Jim Bridger knew of the dangers. Some sources state that he had received letters of concern that the wagons would be hindered by the route. Other sources say he arrogantly dismissed such concerns because they were spoken by people who didn't know the mountains like he did. And some sources accuse him of willfully withholding that information because his fort stood to make a great profit from the travelers using this new shortcut. Either way, he must have felt responsible for this disaster. Think about how he felt about deserting Hugh Glass and how that impacted his psyche. Knowing that you sent 42 people to their death and turned the rest into cannibals, you can't tell me that didn't bother him. So 1846 would continue to be a bad year for this legendary mountain man. He had sent his daughter, Mary Ann, to be educated at the Whitman Missionary some years back, as did most of the mountain men, including Kit Carson and Joe Meek. On November 29th of 1846, that mission came under attack from the local Cayuse tribe, and Mary Ann and more than 50 others were taken hostage. Mary Ann was eventually retrieved, but sadly she died after telling her story. So throughout the mid-1800s, pioneers continued to stop at Fort Bridger to restock and to rest. One account is from Army Officer Howard Stansbury, and he writes... We were received with great kindness and lavish hospitality by the proprietor, Major James Bridger, one of the oldest mountain men in this entire region who had been engaged in the Indian trade, both here and upon the heads of the Missouri and the Columbia for the last 30 years. Several of my wagons needed repair. The train was detained five days for that purpose, Major Bridger courteously placing his blacksmith shop at my service. But not everyone was happy with Jim Bridger and his fort. Some of the members of the Latter-day Saints detested his presence in their neighborhood. He was said to have had multiple arguments with Brigham Young, and things were getting dicey between them. When the U.S. government demanded that Utah be absorbed into the United States, they refused. Well, Seeing an opportunity to get back at his neighbors, who had become such a pain in the butt, Bridger offered his services in a punitive expedition against the Latter-day Saints Church. Under his command, at that time, was a name that you might know, William Frederick Cody, who would go on to become the famous Buffalo Bill. Well, on July 4th, 1849, baby Virginia Rosalie Bridger was born, only to have her mother die during childbirth. So Jim Bridger now has four motherless children to care for. In 1850, while guiding the Stansbury Expedition on its return from Utah, Bridger discovered what would eventually become known as the Bridger Pass, an alternate overland route which bypassed South Pass, and it shortened the Oregon Trail by 61 miles. While 61 miles might not sound like a big deal today, that could mean a week's worth of travel and life or death back in this day. So Bridger Pass is now in south-central Wyoming, and it would later become the chosen route for crossing the Continental Divide, uh, for the Overland Stagecoach, the Pony Express, the Union Pacific Railroad, and even Interstate 80. Now, in 1850, he marries again, this time the daughter of a Shoshone chief, and her name was Mary Washakie. In 1853, Mary Washakie gave birth to Jim's fifth Child, a little girl named Mary Ann Elizabeth. And also during this year, the tensions with the Latter day Saints Church is boiling over, and they, they're resenting the competition from Bridger's Fort, so their men try to arrest him as an outlaw. He grabs Mary and his children, and he escaped into the mountains, and the Latter day Saints burnt and gutted Fort Bridger, destroying all of his supplies. Fearing for their safety, Jim now moves his family to a several hundred acres farm outside of Westport, Missouri, and here his family would at least be safe until he completed his excursions. Jim now took on the role of guide out of Fort Laramie for hunting parties. One notable trip was Sir St. George Gore's 1855-56 hunting trip, where Jim earned $750 for two months of work. That was pretty impressive in the day. On July 16, 1857, he's employed as a guide again, this time during the Utah War, and that's where the military finally took action against those belligerent Latter-day Saint members, and he was away when his wife went into labor with her second child, William. Sadly, Mary Washakie died during childbirth, but Jim didn't know. He wouldn't learn of his wife's death until July of 1858 when he returned from that little Utah war. And his children had all been sent away to live with a family in little Santa Fe. So in 1858, he leased Fort Bridger to the U.S. government to be used as a military post and a a pony express and a stop for the overland stagecoaches. And he collects his children and he heads back to the old homestead. As 1859 rolls in, he's hired as the chief guide for the Yellowstone-bound Reynolds expedition led by Captain William Reynolds. And though unsuccessful in reaching Yellowstone because of the deep snow, the expedition instead explored Jackson Hole, Wyoming, and Pierre's Hole, Idaho. This Captain Reynolds is the man who would record the story of the Bridger's famous raft excursion down the Bighorn Canyon. In 1861, Bridger served as a guide for civil engineer Edward Berthoud. Around the fire at night, the pioneers he was guiding must have been in awe to be in the presence of a man of such renown. He'd tell of his adventures and ridiculous stories like the one about the crow Indian chief who cursed a mountain so that everything is frozen in stone. He said it was a petrified forest with petrified birds singing petrified songs. Or the story describing a lake whose water was boiling on the surface but cool underneath so that when you caught a fish, it was cooked and ready to eat by the time you reeled it in. When asked about his stories being so embellished, he said he didn't think it was proper to spoil a good story just for the sake of the truth. In October 1863 until April 1864, Bridger was employed as a guide at Fort Laramie, and he wasn't cheap. He was fluent in French, Spanish, English, and all of the major native languages. His salary was $300 a month, when the average school teacher wasn't even making that in a year's time. And then in 1864, he blazed the Bridger Trail. It was an alternate route from Wyoming to the gold fields in Montana that avoided the dangerous Bozeman Trail. Up until this time, the Bozeman Trail was the only way through this area, and the natives knew this, so it was prone to raids. Bridger's namesake trail was a much safer route for the travel of pioneers. Father of El Paso, Texas himself, Anson Mills, records the time that he met Bridger, now aged 64, and a living legend. The grizzled old man was being pressed by the surrounding admirers to tell his favorite adventure. Jim Bridger, with his customary flair, enraptured the audience with a story about how he and another trapper had been forced to abandon their camp when a hundred marauding warriors caught them off guard Being numerically disadvantaged, the men took turns alternately laying down cover fire and then springing to their mount and racing ahead of the man in front, thus giving each time to reload. The first day they killed 30 brave Indians, but the horses were tiring, so they took shelter in the deep forest until the light of day. When they resumed their escape, the Indians followed in hot pursuit and the mountain men repeated their defense tactics, killing 30 more on the second day. On the third day, with only 40 natives remaining, the two men spied a sheltered canyon in which they could make their great escape. Matters were desperate. The canyon walls were perpendicular, 300 feet high and growing narrower with every mile. Suddenly, around the bend in the canyon, they saw a waterfall, 200 feet high, completely blocking the exit. At this point, old Jim Bridger would pause and smile inwardly to himself. And when Captain Anson hanging on the edge of his seat, pressed Bridger for the resolution to such a chase. He asked, go on, Mr. Bridger, go on. How did you get out? Oh, bless your soul, Captain, answered Bridger. We never did get out. The Indians killed us right there. So you see why he's known for his stories. Now, it's 1866. The Civil War is finally over, and the now-famous general named William Tecumseh Sherman has been dispatching a force under the command of Colonel Henry Carrington to build three forts along this very dangerous Bozeman Trail. These forts would guard the immigrants coming through Wyoming Territory. But the timing of all this was just terrible. 700 soldiers arrived just in time for a conference between the U.S. government and the surrounding tribes, including the Lakota Sioux. And they're there to discuss the need to be more respectful of each other's territories. And then in tromps all these white men to build forts in the Sioux territories. So you can see the problem here. Well, the chief of the Lakota was a man named Red Cloud. And he was furious that this great onslaught of whites was progressing unchecked across their lands. So Bridger is sent to the council of these chiefs to serve as a mediator alongside his longtime friend, Jim Beckworth. By the end of this extremely tense and ultimately unproductive meeting, the two mountain men agreed that an Indian war was inevitable and it was time to get out of Dodge. Despite protests from the Lakota and Bridger and Beckworth, the U.S. government was going ahead with its plans and it didn't really care who it ran over in the process. The next several months saw these three forts along the Bozeman Trail held hostage by the Sioux. And with these forts being in this state of constant siege for months, supplies are running dangerously low for the inhabitants. Well, an army unit is sent from Fort Kearney which is in the north-central part of Wyoming, and is assigned to be their scout, and he's warning them to use caution. But the man in charge, a guy by the name of Captain William Fetterman, loudly proclaims that with only 80 men, he would ride through the whole Sioux Nation. Bridger told him he might do so, but he'd never ride out again. Eventually, Jim Bridger walked away from the Fetterman's insane plan of attacking the Sioux. And within an hour of leaving Fort Kearney, Fetterman's entire force lay dead in the snow. The government finally gave up and abandoned the forts by the end of 1867, meaning there was no longer a job for Jim Bridger. So Jim was discharged from service as a scout and guide, on the 21st of July 1868 at the ripe old age of 64. His incredible 46-year career was now over. Suffering from goiter and rheumatism and seriously arthritic at this point, Bridger returns to Missouri in 1868. He tries unsuccessfully to collect the back rent from the government for the lease on Fort Bridger And by 1873, Jim Bridger is the last of the Ashley's 100 recruits. He's going blind, and his health is beginning to fade very fast. His daughter, Virginia, lives with him as his primary caregiver. She was interviewed in 1924, and this is what she said. In 1873, father's health began to fail him, and his eyes were very bad, so that he could not see well. And the only way he could distinguish a person was by the sound of their voice. In 1874, his eyesight was leaving him very fast, and this worried him much. At such times, he would get very nervous and wanted to be on the go all the time. I had to watch him and lead him around to please him. Finally, I got him a gentle old horse so he could ride around and have some way of passing the time. We had a dog that always accompanied him. While father could not see very well, the faithful old horse would guide him along as he rode around the farm. Sometimes the horse would go wrong, and they would get lost in the woods. Then the dog would come home and begin to bark, and then we knew something was the matter. The dog would whine around until I would go out and find father and lead him back home. Occasionally he would take the dog, and, cane in hand, would go out to the wheat field to see how the crop was growing. Father would get there down on his hands and knees and feel for the wheat, and that was the way he passed the time. He wished so much that he could regain his eyesight so he could again see the mountains and go back to them. He would long so much to see his old companions and have a chat with them of the old times, away back in the 50s. Again, he would have a great desire to see some of his old friends connected with the army and would say, "'I would give anything in the world if I could see some of them and have a talk of the olden times. But I know I will not be able to see any of my old-time mountain friends any more.' As I know, my time is near. I feel that my health is failing me fast, and that I'm not the same as I used to be. By the following year, 1875, he was completely blind. In an 1880 census, Bridger shows that his daughter Mary Elizabeth and son William also live with him now, and he died on his farm near Kansas City, Missouri, on July 17, 1881, at the age of 77. His friend, General Grenville Dodge, the man for whom Bridger had so often scouted, was one of his greatest admirers. He later wrote an epitaph that really summed his friend up. He says, Unquestionably, Bridger's claims to remembrance rest upon the extraordinary part he bore in the explorations of the West. As a guide, he was without any equal, and this is the testimony of everyone one." whoever employed him. He was a born topographer. The whole West was mapped out in his mind, and such his instinctive sense of locality and direction that it used to be said of him that he could smell his way where he could not see it. He was a complete master of the plains and of woodcraft, equal to any emergency and full of resources to overcome any obstacle. In fact, in all my experience, I never saw Bridger, or any of the voyagers of the plains and mountains, meet any obstacle which they could not overcome. While Bridger was not an educated man, still, any country that he had ever seen he could fully and intelligently describe, and he could make a very correct map of any country he had ever traveled over, could mark out its streams and mountains and the obstacles in it correctly so that there was no trouble in following or understanding it. I have never claimed knowledge that he did not have of the country or its history or its surroundings, and he was positive in his statements in relation to it. He was a good judge of human nature. His comments upon people that he met and had been with were intelligent and seldom critical. He always spoke of their good points, and he was universally respected by the mountain men and looked upon as a leader also by the Indians. He was careful to never give his word without fulfilling it. He understood thoroughly the Indian character, their peculiarities, the superstitions. He felt very keenly the loss of any confidence in him or his judgment, especially when acting as a guide. And when he struck a country or trail that he was not familiar with, he would frankly say so, but often say that he could take our party up to the point we wanted to reach. As a guide, I did not think he had an equal on the plains. And with that, our journey through the life of Jim Bridger has come to an end. I hope I have done this man some justice, and I thank you for coming along with me on this trip. I encourage you to check out the website at fursandfrontiers.com for images and links pertaining to this episode. And watch for the next episode coming in a few weeks. Have a great weekend, everybody, and keep your powder dry.